This is it. We're live. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is Nikki Acosta, and this is Cloud Unfiltered. Val has the day off. He's at Cisco Live, but I am really excited about our guest, someone who has uh, been really involved with me on a personal level as far as uh, BetaCloud is concerned and OpenStack goes for a long time now. So uh, Ryan Floyd from Storm Ventures, welcome to the show. Hey, good to be here. So we were talking pre-show about what we wanted to talk about, and we don't have a really hard agenda, but uh, I definitely wanted to ask, since the last time I think I podcasted with you was like March of 2015. Um, Since that time, obviously a lot has changed as far as cloud goes and the industry goes and containers and AI and all the new things that are happening. What are your current thoughts on the state of cloud relative to what they were before? Well, yeah, I think you hit it. I think a lot's uh, a lot's changed, uh, and I guess some things have stayed the same. Um, you know, OpenStack I think did not work out uh, as at least I had thought it was going to. You know, several years ago, um, and so I think from an investment standpoint, we don't spend a lot of time looking at sort of private cloud opportunities today. Uh, the public cloud vendors have you know, done better than I expected in terms of claiming enterprise business. And so we spent a lot of time thinking about how to enable enterprises to move to the public clouds, how to manage a hybrid environment, how to manage multi-clouds. And I think that's, I think that's a big, big change for us in the venture community. Um, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's good. I think it, it's, Everything is, I guess, accelerated. The services that are coming now on top of the cloud in terms of what people can take advantage of, if you look at, you know, sort of Lambda and serverless and the trends there, that's that's pretty interesting. Uh, containers, I think, probably, I mean, talk about speed. Probably since the last time we talked, containers were sort of an interesting thing and have gone to sort of peak sort of container interest to now... I think it's viewed as just another block in the stack, uh, and people, you know, the version of like Kubernetes and Docker and that that acknowledgement going forward, or at least appears to be today, you know, that's all dramatic changes as well. So yeah, lots lots been going on uh, underneath kind of the surface, I guess, on the infrastructure side. But for us as a venture firm, you know, we really spend more of our time now really focused on enabling enterprises to take advantage of it or on the application stack itself. There's very little time we spend now on in the infrastructure. So you've, you've been, uh, you've been doing storm ventures for a while for people who aren't familiar with storm ventures. Tell us what you do and happy 15th year. Is it 15 year anniversary that you guys just had? Uh, two years ago. Yeah. So seven, 17 years, uh, at, at storm, uh, which is just amazing to think about, uh, all that has happened in 17 years, uh, you know, beyond the scope of, of this talk, but, um, started out basically with a pretty simple vision of just focusing very narrowly on helping, uh, companies, startups focus on the enterprise. Um, we thought that there was a need for a venture firm that just really looked at building enterprise businesses because I think the thing that we saw, and I think it's just been confirmed over the years, is that a lot of similar sorts of challenges in their journey to building their business. And, and a lot of those challenges occur in and around sales and marketing and, and sort of a go-to-market strategy. And so we spend all, almost all of our time to scale their businesses and, and go through the challenges that they're going to incur kind of in, you know, in that journey uh, of um, you know, go, going to market. And 
by just focusing on the enterprise, we just it's it's a lot easier than if we were trying to do biotech and other things. We're able to kind of keep the firm fairly small, and we've stayed true to that that thesis, and it's worked out well for us. I mean, we invest typically in companies that have got a little bit of revenue, a little bit of indication from the market that there's there's pull and there's interest in the product, because it's really only at that time that you want to start investing in sales and marketing, and that's sort of the marker for us when it makes for a good fit. I, I can imagine. Uh coming from a, from an earth systems background uh, <laughs> that that you probably never intended to end up you know as a co-founder of a, of a VC firm what was uh, that, that would be true that would be <laughs> <What> was, <laughs> how did you how did you end up going from you know earth systems which is you know science environment related stuff interrelationships between uh, all of the sort of systems on the planet to to a VC firm <laughs> to, to, to being a capitalist yes you can you can say it how, how did that happen um well so it's i don't know maybe it's an interesting story so i've always been interested in science uh that was always my thing and earth systems kind of presented this ability to look broadly at scientific kind of principles that govern the earth right and so that was really cool and i really enjoyed that uh in in college quickly to the realization that there, i didn't want to be like a national park ranger uh, I didn't want to go work for a nonprofit, and honestly, I don't think I really had the intellect to be a professor. So my kind of career options were limited, and so I started kind of thinking through where could I have an impact, and I started getting, I was always interested in business, but I started kind of getting in, interested in that as an undergrad, some courses at the business school, um, and one thing kind of led to another, and when uh, I was coming out of uh, undergrad, I ended up getting a job firm called Summit Partners. Um, the, and, the, and the job was essentially what people would call today an SDR, a sales development rep. I was uh, cold calling companies, trying to convince them to take, really it was a sales job, and it was a fantastic, so much to that firm for really, you know, not only teaching, introducing me to private equity and, and, and venture ultimately, but, but also what, what it really takes to be successful in selling and so forth. So that was great. And then one thing kind of led to another. Um, I ended up going to work for, uh, well, I should say it's funny, when I started at Summit, I couldn't spell technology because they had a history of investing in some uh, environmental technologies uh, that were kind of big back in the 90s, um, waste management, that sort of thing. Well, it turns out those sectors became very out of favor. And uh, if I didn't get into technology, I basically was going to be out of a job because that was really what was interesting when I was at Summit. So that's what first kind of ignited my interest in, in tech. And tech back then was you know, it was much more narrow scope than it is today. I mean, you know, we didn't have browsers. I, everything was done still in newspapers and email was sort of still kind of a novelty. Uh, people still printed out emails and that sort of thing. It was, it was it's odd to think back to that time. But um, I, one of the investments that Summit ultimately made was in a fiber optics company. Uh, I ended up going to work there and uh, we took that company public and then I ended up starting Storm with from E-Tech and, and, and a few others. And uh, yeah, the rest is, uh, the rest is history. Amazing. What a neat story. I, I, uh, I was a communications major. Consequently, I get to do stuff like this. So I actually, I guess, somewhat use my degree. Yeah. Uh, but I don't think I ever intended to get into tech either. And boy, has it been a ride. It's been fun. Well, I, think, I mean, I, you know, maybe we're talking about, I think it's hard today to not be in tech. I mean, it's amazing. One of the changes that's just so dramatic over the last, really even just the last five years, but certainly over the last 17, is a tech company. Uh, for the most part, I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but it's so strategic now to every single business. You know, when we started, 
you know, tech was kind of this West Coast thing. The bankers in Wall Street had like a couple of analysts that kind of covered it and kind of covered all of that with one analyst. It's just a massive part of our economy. And I think it's because every business today really has to take advantage of it to be successful. And so I think to some degree, everybody now uh, is in tech or, or another, at least leverages it for their, for their job. What, what does that mean for established, I'll say classic tech companies, you know, the, the Oracles, the IBMs, the Cisco's who have sort of been in this for a really long time. Like, how do you see that sitting at a VC firm? Well, you know, I think one of the, the one of the great things for venture and tech is that uh, tech is just merciless when it comes to innovation and those on top and it's kind of maintaining your top dog kind of position. And, and, and honestly, venture investors wouldn't have a job. There'd be no opportunity if you didn't have an ability to go in and compete with companies like Cisco and HP and IBM and Oracle in certain arenas, right? Just look at the recent IPO with like MongoDB, Exhibit A. So I think we benefit greatly from the fact that, that tech does not have much shelf life and you're constantly, whether you're a startup or whether you're a large company, put in a position of having to reinvent yourself. Success of the large companies is largely kind of going to hang on whether or not they can reinvent themselves going forward. And it's not an indictment of the companies. It's just the reality of tech that as things move forward and progress, you have to progress the business as well. And it just moves at an astonishing pace. And that, that pace of change is, you know, it's that, that's the challenge I think most large companies face. That, that's, that's a hard, I mean, it, large companies like Cisco have phenomenal engineers, very smart people working there, but it's just, it's hard to turn a big organization in a short period of time. I think a lot of, a lot of startups and uh, some of the community doesn't really get that, that, you know, large companies have phenomenal people, but it's just sometimes hard to be agile at <laughs> this inertia uh, behind you. I don't know how many field salespeople Cisco has, but it's a lot. Um, and you can't just turn that on a dime. So I think, yeah, a lot will hang on that. But, you know, you know, I, putting, putting Cisco aside, you know, you'll get a company like Oracle. And I think, you know, the strategy that Oracle has, like, put in place uh, around the cloud, um, I think it's pretty smart. Uh, I guess the, the, the jury's out on whether or not it's going to work. Um, but uh, I think they've got a good strategy in place. You, you look at Microsoft, you know, Microsoft's done a very good job. They made a couple of big tech trends. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think they've got in the right place to sort of compete for the next decade but you know it does happen um, and, and so what are you looking for when you are investing in a company as far as you know the people and the culture like what is the I'm sure you get pitched all day every day I'm sure people are just you know calling you pitching stuff all the time what what do you what is your your like top you know few things that you're looking for before you make that decision to invest your time and energy and money into a company? I, I think there's a lot of trite things you'll hear from like venture investors that are sort of baseline. You know, we're, every venture investor is looking for a great team, market opportunities, because um, uh, it's really the con, you know, those two things mixed in with great execution that sort of, you know, ultimately really drives an opportunity. Um, beyond, you know, finding a great team uh, to back, uh, going after big markets. For us specifically, like I was mentioning earlier, it's a filter of really investing in companies where we can help, where, where you know, it's kind of a filter for us. If we, if we can't answer that question, how can we make this company successful? It's likely not the best investment for us to make. I want to see companies where 
for example, there's a little bit of product revenue, you have those initial handful of customers, it's all kind of theory about whether or not uh, whatever product or service you're building, uh, you know, has got, has got legs in, in, in the market. And so that's, that's really important to us. Um, you know, we want to find, you know, uh, I guess a, a, a product that you feel like you can repeat uh, a sale uh, with multiple customers in where you can, you know, create a process around it. So a counter example of that would be like, you know, if you close one massive deal with one massive, you know, enterprise organization, repeat, and while it might be great revenue, I'm not sure we could really help design how that you can make that repeatable if it took you two years to close that, that deal, nor could you necessarily teach a bunch of other sales and marketing folks how to, you know, uh, uh, re repeat it. So that's a lot of what, you know, that's a lot of what we look for. Things that are defensible, we try to find uh, things that, you know, you can feel that you can build up as a company over time. And defensibility has gotten to be, I think, tricky uh, over the last you know, 15 years, certainly compared to 17 years ago when I started. When I started, it was all about IP. It was all about like technical differentiation. But the unfortunate reality in software is it's just code. And if you, you get to the fundamental principle that, you know, there's nobody has a monopoly on great engineers and great coders, everything's kind of a function of time that in terms of being able to build software. And it's very hard to get IP protection around these sorts of applications. Um, <clears throat> You know, in that case, we're looking for entrepreneurs that are not only great, but, but have a lot of domain expertise. So that's where you end up creating moats is where you have teams that really understand, you know, a dangerous situation. The counter example that would be founders that come in and are talking about building a product or service in a market or selling to people that they really don't have an experience set in because the unknowns there are going to be tremendous. Um, and we certainly, you know, don't pretend that we're going to be experts in any particular market either. So we really look for the, the teams to be that they're building products against. Do, do you think that the, the model uh, for, for large tech companies of spinning things out to let them kind of run on their own and then absorbing them back in is better than I'll say, you know, doing, acquisitions at a later date or or trying to develop that in-house just for the culture factor alone? Especially from Cisco's point of view, right? I mean, Cisco's found a lot of success in doing that, um, but I think it's also caused a lot of rifts. Um, I think there's a risk, there's a reason why Arista exists today, uh, which is, I'm sure, very frustrating uh, internally at Cisco, but I, you know, I don't know all of the, the history there, but a lot of it has to do with the fact that they're Concept of like you know spin outs and pulling companies back in, and I think there was a lot of internal frustration around maybe preferential treatment that that resulted. It's hard to be fair and equitable, I guess, when you start talking about doing spin outs in terms of how it's viewed internally, especially in a large organization where you communicate effectively with everyone about what that strategy is about. It's not going to surprise you. I mean, I think investors do it is the smartest way to do it because you're really getting. A, a very good alignment in terms of trying to go build value and build an organization uh, and hire the very, very best people. And there's no cutting corners. Um, there's no, you know, these, these companies have to stand on their own. They, they, they have to, cheats, I guess, if you're, if you're going to go and try and raise money with a venture investor and build an independent entity. And so I think what, an acquiring company gets then in the future is a much likely a much stronger 
uh, overall company uh, going going forward, you know, the counter that would be, you know, it maybe they have to pay more. It's more expensive. You know, the company maybe had invested in sales and marketing that maybe isn't as helpful to a large organization that already has those people. But I think you look at most of these acquisitions that are made strategically, the amount of money that, you know, a company, if it's a strategic acquisition and it's done right, multiples. Uh, and so I think the more important question is really thinking through what is strategic, number one, and then uh, integrating that company thoughtfully. I think that's Cisco actually is probably best in class when it comes to integrating companies. They're very, very good at it. Um, a lot of other organizations that don't do as many acquisitions are very poor at it. You know, it's hard to make an acquisition work because if, if you can't integrate the people and you can't integrate the teams, it doesn't really matter how great the product or service is. So you're, you're an infrastructure guy. You, you spend a lot of time, you know, sort of dealing with, with, uh, with companies that kind of revolve around the infrastructure space and cloud and SaaS. Uh, tell us about some of the companies that you are are working with now, and and why uh, why you see bright futures maybe for some of them. Yeah, so so I would say you know on the infrastructure side, if you define it as things that you know are bought sort of in a data center like environment or used by DevOps, you know it's probably our portfolio today. It's actually not not certainly not as big as it was ten years ago for the. For the reason I mentioned, I think a lot of the opportunity, at least for venture investors, has shifted, so to speak. Um, but the, you know, the companies we're excited about today is what I was mentioning earlier, which is you know, where they're really helping enterprises move to the public cloud or manage a hybrid cloud environment. So one, for example, that's working closely with Cisco right now is SwiftStack. So uh, you know, SwiftStack today, uh, it's, a, it's a, a storage software company that uh, not only does it provide kind of base level software storage that runs on Cisco UCS gear, but um, what, what's really compelling about it for customers and the reason the Cisco partnership is so powerful is because it allows these enterprises to be able to take advantage of the public cloud with their existing storage environment using SwiftStack and also work in a multi-cloud environment if that's what they want to do as well. And whether or not companies ultimately buy a SwiftStack solution or not, they're going to have to buy something like it going forward. It's a necessary requirement in sort of the infrastructure stack going forward because if you're going to be managing storage in these multiple, you know, multiple environments, including, your, including on-prem, set of products out there to do that. That's not really you know, what people have kind of designed for historically. And, and you know, there's some out there that would say, well, but everything's just moving to the public cloud. And my retort to that is, I just, I, it, I just do not believe that most large enterprises are going to move 100% of all of their infrastructure to AWS. Certainly not in any reasonable time frame. And my guess would be, even when they do go completely to the cloud, they will likely take advantage of multiple cloud operators. Because I think what we've started to see over time is that, for example, Google's BigQuery rocks. It's a very impressive offering, and it beats anything that AWS has, but it's just one service offering. So you may find customers that want to run something, but they may also want to have compute in AWS. And so companies like SwiftStack, I think, are going to step in and, and service that. Um, we recently invested in a company called Honeycomb uh, that uh, is kind of redefining uh, how logging and monitoring is done for applications, because one of the 
The challenge is now in this new environment where you have you know, largely distributed systems, your ability to instrument everything in sort of the new relic app dynamic concept um, is, is, can become much harder uh, because a lot of the infrastructure you necessarily control. And so being able to do much better indexing and searching against things like why did my API latency increase on Sunday at 10 a.m. sort of query <clears throat> becomes critical and it's a very hard problem to solve. And the reason I think, too, that it's been, uh, it ha- it's gone largely unsolved up until now is that it really requires some artificial intelligence and machine learning to be effective uh, or deliver a solution, which has just been hard to implement uh, until fairly recently. And so Honeycomb's, uh, you, know, uh, go- you know, going after that. We, we did a small seed investment in a company called IO Pipe. Um, it's a great company that's going after uh, the serverless, basically serverless compute kind of uh, monitoring, specifically targeted today at, at land in AWS, but it could focus uh, anywhere around serverless with you know, a similar thesis in a way to Honeycomb, but very specific around locations where, again, the, the tools and the isolate you know, faults and bugs in that environment. It's very unique. It's sort of a new paradigm, new uh, capabilities and, and new solutions to basically go solve it. And so IO pipes going after that. That we've done, you know, recently on the, on the infrastructure or infrastructure like side. And then I think, you know, maybe one other company to mention that's a little bit up the stack, you know, lots going on with big data uh, and people trying to take advantage of data we didn't make an investment in any of the open source Hadoop vendors, but that, that is a that trend we've paid very, very close attention to. And an investment we're pretty excited about is a company called AtScale. Essentially allows uh, enterprises to run uh, their queries directly on their Hadoop or whatever their big data infrastructure is without doing any sort of ETL. One of the dirty little secrets with everybody that has done anything in big data to date is that they go through all these ETL exercises, which is a massive tax uh, that these companies have to pay to be able to drive queries, which ultimately is what drives value out of storing and capturing and analyzing all the data. And Askale basically allows you to get rid of that ETL tax. Uh, and so we're pretty excited about uh, that one too. Wow, R- runs the gamut in terms of the, the spectrum of things. Are, are these all companies that offer their, their product on a subscription basis? Yeah, they all, you know, they, they do, they all offer on a subscription basis, but they will also do, uh, you know, uh, term licenses as well. We try to avoid, uh, you know, perpetual uh, licenses, but organizations want to be able to capitalize software, not to get too much into the weeds, but there's ways to do that by, by basically uh, giving them a, a term license, which sort of approximates a subscription sort of deal to, but to the buyer, uh, it looks more like a, uh, a perpetual deal. Awesome. So what is, what's, uh, what's all the buzz in the Bay Area these days as far as, you know, the, the tech scene, you know, the, the VC scene? I, I, you know, I have probably a little bit more of a limited view because I'm in Austin, but it seems like there's some really neat things happening with a conscious capitalism and kind of this, uh, this shift, at least in the Austin community. And I, and I think I've seen a, a few things in the Bay Area along those lines too. But what's new? What's new in the Bay? You know, it's, there's always some new shiny object, whether it's, you know, I don't know, uh, Bitcoin and, and cryptocurrency and 
what's happening, you know, there and ICOs. Uh, we actually do have a, we have a company that's thinking about doing an ICO uh, in our portfolio, and that'll be really interesting if they end up uh, they end up doing that. I think you know it's not necessarily what's new in the last thirty days, but friends in venture uh, that I still am just sort of amazed at is that business today won't go after. So whether it's sending people to the moon, building mattress companies, uh, supermarkets, name it. There's just nothing uh, that venture investors won't go after. You know, consumer packaged brand, you know, goods, you know, brands. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really, truly amazing. And so I think the breadth, uh, sort of, you know, the opportunities that venture investors will look at today, pretty cool. And you know, and I think that should lead to some pretty interesting things uh, over the next few years. I mean, it, it just people's willingness, tremendous amount of risk on tech ideas, whether it's in augmented reality, you know, in terms of what companies are doing there. I mean, it's very much bleeding edge. People that are, you know, all in and they believe that that's going to be massive in terms of revenue. I think when that's going to happen, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. I think what most people will tell you uh, is that believe it. Venture investors are usually very good at predicting general trends in terms of what we're investing in, uh, not very good on timing. <laughs> so what I mean by that is uh, augmented reality, you could be putting a lot of money in it today, but it may not turn out to be an interesting market for five years. And unfortunately, that means a lot of people are going to lose money. It could happen faster as well, but I think some of these trends that are emerging right now in Silicon Valley are absolutely real, and um, they're just they're going to be massive. And we've we've looked at I'll give you another trend. We've looked at a bunch of robotics companies uh, over the last several months, and for really the first time, I wouldn't say I'm like a robotics expert, but I have spent spent time looking at robotics over the last you know ten years, off and on. Lot outside of like industrial welding that's been interesting. All of a sudden, in last year, there's been a number of companies that have started to emerge that are, are I think, potentially really interesting. There, there's been a lot of talks. Uh, speaking of sort of robotics and you know AI and all these other kind of neat technologies that are that are coming along about the displacement of workers. Uh, you know, this yes. is this is something that you know everyone from you know Jack Ma from Alibaba has talked about to Tim O'Reilly in his latest book. Um, what is this? What do you think this means for the future of citizens and our work weeks and our time? Like, what what happens? It seems like it's going to be a little bit of a rough transition for folks. I I I, I would not have I would not. Um, how disruptive uh, I think tech is going to be over the next decade. Probably a lot of things that we just can't foresee today. There's the obvious examples that everybody gives, like you know, being a truck driver is the number one job in like 48 states. I forget the exact stat, but you know, to the extent you know, autonomous vehicles take over, that's a lot of jobs. I think with that being said, um, where we really see AI uh, really taking hold is where it's human assisted and where it's driving productivity. I don't believe it's a situation, certainly in the next, you know, for well, whatever, the, the foreseeable future, 
where jobs are just completely eliminated. But I don't think that's really where the challenge is. I think where the challenge is, is where you have situations where you just maybe don't need as many people in a particular function because you're able to get so much more out of having, you know, AI assisted kind of capabilities that you didn't, you weren't be able, you weren't able to do before. Now, what that means for people, you know, uh, and what's going to happen to workforces, you know, that's it, obviously it's very, very hard to predict. I think one of the positive trends, as I was mentioning before, is I think everyone is taking advantage more and more technology today. Everyone's becoming a technologist. Um, thanks to things like Facebook, um, I mean, just people use it all the time, and it may seem like that's a complete waste of time, but, but, but I think in some ways it is training a lot of people, too, to be more uh, technically literate. And I think it's just getting easier and easier to develop things, to create things. Um, you know, one of the trends we're really excited about is being able to give uh, different people in the organization the ability to create and develop their own applications and roll out technical infrastructure that they used to have to rely on engineering for. You know, this trend kind of started with, uh, with marketing, I think, with the marketing uh, uh, platforms like Marketo. Uh, the ability to roll out their own campaigns without having to talk to any technical resources. But now this is happening across the organization, whether it's in HR, it's in product, um, finance, where you're really empowering people to do things themselves with technology that, you know, they used to have lockers. So, you know, in that way, it's creating more opportunities for people and there's new opportunities that didn't exist before. It is, it is certainly, um, uh, challenging and 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 I think it requires some some thought because the pace it's happening so quickly um, and it's just hard for people to adjust if you're you know 40 50 years old and you've been you know doing a particular job it could be hard to refactor into sort of a new potentially and that's a large part of the American workforce large part of the worldwide workforce um, that I think would be tra it'd be a tragedy to lose yeah, I was I was looking at a an article today about my specific generation. I was born in 79, but there was sort of this pocket of, you know, between the uh the the generation Xers uh and you know, the wires and then the, you know, going on to millennials. Uh and they call it the zennials. <laughs> you know, like we were the the generation that grew up with analog and very quickly found digital. And, and I, I distinctly remember that because I had a Walkman and I had, you know, we didn't have cell phones, we had pagers at some point. And then, you know, we kind of grew up with technology, but I feel like that the change of pace is just so insane. It's like, it's almost impossible to kind of keep up with the latest and greatest, even tech gadgets these days. And, and I'm wondering, you know, it, it seems like good things have happened when people become familiar with the technology. In some ways, I feel like by the time you get fam familiar with a the technology, there's something better and new and completely different that is disrupting whatever you're familiar with. Uh, so I, yeah. you know, I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, the, the pace is fast. It's very, very fast. But I think the foundation that you have in tech enables the step to the next thing that's coming along that's disruptive because everything is just evolutionary. I mean, there's, there's nothing that, you know, is just completely comes out of like left field that no one's ever got any like sort of connection to or makes sense. What's spooky for so many people going back to, you know, potentially the impact on jobs is that if you don't have any literacy at all and it's not been something you spent any time on, then it's very daunting because you're right. Then it just, it's like this, 
the pace and you don't even know where to get started. Look, and I'm also speaking from a position of inside the bubble. I think it, to be fair, it's probably very hard for me to see what it's like for most people. I, you know, I truly have to close my eyes and imagine because I live in this just ridiculous bubble in Silicon Valley where people really talk about in a lot of respects is the tech and what's happening in tech. And that's everybody's lives revolves around it. And so everybody here just takes, takes it for granted. I, I know you're a surfer. I, you know, I've been talking to a lot of friends in tech who are now turning to things like, you know, surfing or meditation uh, and really just trying to kind of have an opportunity to turn off the enormous amount of information that is coming our way all the time. Is surfing kind of your, your zen? And do, do you think everyone needs a little bit of zen these days? I do. Everyone needs a little digital detox. Uh, I'm sure I'm not alone here, but, you know, I'll find myself anxiety if I'm not checking my phone. And there's, you know, there's, you know, at 8 o'clock at night, there's no reason for me to be checking my phone. And, uh, but there'll be like this anxiety about, you know, I need, you know, and it's, it's, it's kind of subconscious where, you know, I feel like I need to be on top of it. So I think, yeah, it is. It's very important. And that is for me, yeah, surfing. I mean, that's certainly part of it. It's great exercise too. I have a great group of friends that I see on a regular basis when I go, but it is, you know, I get to meditate it and I think meditation, a lot of it's just being able to block out everything else that's happening. And if you can do that by and meditating to, you know, maybe some soft music and with, uh, you know, more kind of in a more like traditional way, that's great. It means you're playing tennis or you're, you know, in my case, surfing or going for a walk. That's great too. And I think it, it is critical because if you, if you don't, uh, these, the, the, the digital world just takes over. And um, I don't think it's a happy, it's not a happy place. Um, you know, you don't, it's just, you know, you don't want other people dictating all of your thoughts. You don't want to be always reacting to what you see on social media or what email is at the top of your inbox. And I think the only way really to take control of some of that is to really take time for yourself. Great words. Awesome. So with that, I think we're, we're about done unless there's anything else that you want to, you know, anyone else you want to give a shout out to or anything? Uh I I I, uh, I appreciate you having me on. It's uh, it's always fun to chat. Yeah, no doubt. Hope to see you soon, uh, Ryan. Thank you again for joining us. And with that, let's say goodbye. Bye.